Hello, this is Paul Sachs. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and this is the OFID podcast. And as a reminder, that's OFID and not OFID. Today I have with me Dr. David Bulwer, Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. And for those of us in the IDHIV world, perhaps best known for leading the important co-trial of early versus deferred antiretroviral therapy in people with HIV-related cryptococcal meningitis, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. But that's not why he's here with us today. I've invited him on to discuss another remarkable study he led, also published in the New England Journal of Medicine just recently. It's a placebo-controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine for prevention of COVID-19 in people with high-risk household or occupational exposures. The study was negative. Hydroxychloroquine did not prevent COVID-19 more than placebo, but nonetheless was truly innovative in how it was conducted. We'll come to the study in more detail momentarily, but first, David, thank you for joining us. Paul, thank you for inviting me to be here. So start us off by telling us a bit about yourself. How did you get into medicine in general and into ID and clinical trials specifically? So I grew up with a sister with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, sort of in a, a medical household, I guess. But this is back in the you know 70s and 80s when there wasn't a lot of therapy for rheumatoid arthritis. I was always sort of interested in medicine and helping other people. And that's what drove me towards going to med school. And clearly, um, infectious diseases is the most exciting aspect of medicine. And why wouldn't someone want to be an ID doc? I have no idea. I certainly understand the appeal myself, but if you talk to an orthopedic surgeon, uh, they might disagree. <laughs> Perhaps. So in med school, I really much more gravitated towards travel medicine and wilderness medicine. I, I did a study on injuries and illnesses of Appalachian Trail backpackers, wow. <laughs> which basically was a good reason to go hiking on the Appalachian Trail for the summer. And then did some other fun stuff on jellyfish sting inhibitors on a randomized trial and, and did a, a randomized trial on permethrin, treated tents at a Boy Scout camp to decrease uh, mosquito bites. So hmm. a, a sort of a number of fun sort of little trials as a med student and as a resident. So you're a clinical trialist and you're generally an HIV and a TB and fungal meningitis researcher. Let's talk now about the hydrochloroquine post-exposure prophylaxis trial. Where and when did you get the idea to do it, and how did it come about? So on March 8th, I was in D.C., and I was getting ready to head to Boston for the CROI conference, and that was sort of canceled and became a, a virtual conference, as everyone knows. And so when we came back to uh, Minnesota on March 9th, I gathered my team together, and we had four days on our calendars, which were relatively open, which is quite unusual. That morning, we gathered everyone together, and at that point, spread was happening of COVID in the community, and it was very apparent that it was going to get much worse. And so I had emailed someone at NIAID about whether anyone is doing anything about prophylaxis, particularly post-exposure prophylaxis for healthcare workers or household contacts who were exposed to COVID. And the answer was sort of no, that they were working on the remdesivir trial and, and working on rolling that out as quickly as possible. But I thought, well, you know, as we sort of all stand around and say, yeah, someone should do something about that. And I said, well, maybe that's us. And I gravitated towards chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine because I knew that they were available. They're obviously FDA approved. They're inexpensive. And I knew that they had in vitro antiviral activity against a number of different viruses, including HIV. So it's one thing to think about doing a clinical trial. It's another thing actually to pull it off. Um, <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how you formulated the study design. How did you get to decide your eligibility criteria, your endpoints? What were the next steps? So I did a chloroquine trial actually back when I was an ID fellow. 
um, looking at HIV, and this is back in 2007, we were looking at changes in immune activation and things like that. And it, it basically decreased immune activation. And it didn't really do much else, but I did have my protocol still. And so I pulled that out and I sort of went back and thought, well, what are all the inclusion and exclusion criteria, which were still valid for the most part, and um, thinking about who we'd want to include. And so we were trying to get high-risk people. And so we thought about healthcare workers with a high-risk exposure without PPE or without full PPE anyway, as well as people with household contacts that where one person in the household has COVID and then the other person is just told to self-quarantine. Basically, we're going to target those people to enroll. And then the question was, well, how to do it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is where the study becomes, in my mind, remarkably innovative. How are you going to do this study? Well, we didn't have any money. Um, <laughs> necessity is the mother of invention, is the saying. And I had a little bit of some funds that I had scrolled away for a rainy day. So the first step was basically seeing what it was in my account and buying some hydroxychloroquine. And so we bought about $5,000 worth of hydroxychloroquine because we figured that if this is the one active drug um, in vitro and coronavirus explodes in the U.S. as it did, there's you know likely to be a drug shortage. And so mm. could we even get the drug was question number one. And then we decided to do it in an internet-based um, study. And so at the time, there were very few cases in Minnesota that has since changed. But, you know, we thought, let's enroll everywhere around the U.S. and see if we can get particularly healthcare workers and, and others who might be exposed to enroll in an Internet-based trial. Wow. To me, the brilliant insight here was to realize that you could do it by the Internet. I mean, that's obviously how we're all connected these days, especially uh, after COVID hit, because many of us are communicating extensively online. But did you worry about things like IRB approval and, you know, how to get the medicines to the patients and whether the patients were going to be real. Yes, lots of concerns. <laughs> you know, for most of our work, you know, we work in sub-Saharan Africa. And so we're used to doing everything ourselves. I guess as an investigator-initiated protocol, we were able to do everything ourselves of going through the IRB and mm. putting together the FDA investigational new drug application submission work through all the parts relatively quickly because we have a team that's been together for you know, almost a decade now. The question of how would people react? Were people real? We figured that it would be a pretty motivated audience to have to come, find out about the trial, go online, enroll in the trial, and then and then we're FedExing drugs to their house. And so our major concern was that people would just like, thank you for the drug, and I'm just going to take the drug <laughs> and not actually fill out any surveys. And so as part of the, the screening process, we did ask, particularly for the household contacts, who was their contact, what was their name, you know, where they were exposed. We asked what hospital, if they had PCR testing. You know, for healthcare workers, we asked where they worked and what they did and sort of zip code of, of where their hospital was. We didn't ask the name of the patient they were exposed to for HIPAA reasons. But we collected a fair amount of information. We asked for next of kin, like who should we talk to if they got sick or hospitalized. People had to provide a number of different pieces of information as well as fill out the screening criteria correctly that would make them eligible for the trial. And so I think we screened out most people. We didn't get any Bart Simpsons from Springfield. Um, <laughs> but we did have some, you know, 555 uh, phone numbers and, and a couple people that, you know, were a little bit phony and were able to screen those people out as well. Yeah, obviously there would be some people maybe who weren't real, but yeah. they would balance out in the two arms of the study. That is the beauty of the randomized trial. For most people, I think they were pretty serious 
if people just wanted hydroxychloroquine, you could just write a prescription or have someone write a prescription for you and, and take it. And be twice as likely to get the real drug. <laughs> yeah, you are twice as likely to get the real drug that way. And so if you were to randomize, be like, man, I'm going to get a vitamin or I'm going to get hydroxychloroquine, people really wanted hydroxychloroquine. They were probably not going to enroll in our trial. Hmm. But that is the beauty of a randomized trial in that if we had fake people or people that got lost to follow up because they didn't really want to be in the trial, they got equally balanced between the two arms. Hmm. And you decided to go with a syndromic definition of COVID-19 and the people participating in the study. How did you make that decision? Well, the president said that everyone could get a PCR test. And so we actually thought when we designed it in early March, like, yeah, testing was a major problem, but surely this is going to get better. But we realized, well, maybe that's not going to happen. And so we decided ideally people were going to get PCR testing, but if PCR testing was not available, then we were going to go with a syndromic definition for those who were not tested. That was really a very wise move because as you're aware, even though testing did increase hugely in March. It was still quite limited. And a lot of people decided that if they had symptoms of COVID, they would stay home and not come in and get tested unless they were really sick. Right. So a very important decision on your part. Yeah. And even here in Minnesota, you know, we didn't really start testing outpatients until May. Wow. And so in, in March, it was pretty limited. And in April, for hospitalized patients, it got a lot better. And the turnaround time was slightly better. And healthcare workers were, were starting to get tested in April. But the general public really wasn't eligible for outpatient testing until really May. And so by that point, our trial was done. Yeah. Our testing situation here was better than a lot of places, I think, mm -hmm. because most people, even if they were healthcare workers, didn't have access to testing within our trial, which shocked me. The fact that only 20% of people had access to testing who got sick. So how was the pace of enrollment and any obstacles along the way anticipated and otherwise? The pace was sort of explosive at first. We went from like six patients to 20 to 50 to like 100 a day. So things were quite rapid over the first two weeks or so. And I think it was about two days into our trial, the, the president started talking about hydroxychloroquine and then more people were starting to talk about it. And then it sort of rapidly became a very political topic and you know, during the first weeks of April. And then our enrollment fell off dramatically. Mm. And so maybe that's because the lockdown and COVID went down, but the national cases didn't go down that much. And so, you know, rapidly it became a very political issue, which was very unfortunate for our trial. As I've said before, that half the people thought that it worked. And so it was unethical to be in a trial that randomized half the people to placebo. The other half of people by mid-April thought it was a dangerous medicine and had all these major cardiac risk factors. If you took it, you're going to die of a cardiac arrhythmia. And that wasn't quite true either. You know, they thought it was unethical to be in a trial with hydroxychloroquine. And soon, like, no one wanted to be in any hydroxychloroquine trial. Yeah, the enemy of science here is politics. Yeah, the politicalization <laughs> was not a good thing. And I would have preferred that no one ever talked about our trial outside of the medical community. But we live in the world that we live in. And so it became a very partisan issue. And by basically mid-March, our enrollment trickled off to just a handful. And when the FDA sent out an announcement on the dangers of hydroxychloroquine on April 24th. After that, we enrolled like four people and then sort of stopped trial enrollment basically two weeks later on May 6th. But I, mean, I want to remind people listening how fast you did it. You got the idea for this study in early March and you were already up and enrolling by the end of the month. I mean, this it was this is amazing. Pretty <laughs> rapid, yeah. I mean, we, we started the idea on March 9th. We enrolled our first patient on March 17th. You know, having gone through the IRB, got an FDA approval, built a database and questionnaires. Well, that's just extraordinary. Pretty rap. Yeah. So what surprised you most about doing a study like this compared to the other trials you've done or just doing research in general? The hardest thing, I think, was the outside influences. Usually there's not a lot of outside influences in Africa. There's not people tweeting about it and upset about your trials and things like that. So I don't recall too many cryptococcal trials that have been 
denounced in social media. Um, <laughs> but the trial itself ran fairly smoothly. Our loss to follow up rate was under 10%, mm. which is better than what we thought it was going to be. We thought we'd get a lot of flaky people on an internet-based trial. But yeah, most people were pretty serious and had pretty good follow-up, completed most of the surveys as we asked them. And um, we're pretty appreciative of us trying to find an answer. So it's a negative study, as I mentioned at the outset. Do you think this is the final word on hydroxychloroquine for prevention of COVID, or is there still a glimmer of hope there? Or For post-exposure prophylaxis, the question is, you know, why didn't it work? And so there's probably two reasons. One is it just doesn't work. Or the other option is we just didn't get it to them quick enough. And so if you sort of read the tea leaves and look at the subgroup analyses, the people that got enrolled within one day or two days of exposure did better than the people that did three or four days later. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope there. And so I'm not totally down on hydroxychloroquine, but I think clearly based on our trial, post-exposure did not seem to work. There's another unpublished trial in Barcelona that reportedly is a negative study. And then the hospital data has clearly been quite mixed and the recovery trial in the UK is a large randomized controlled trial. Mm -hmm fairly definitively said that in hospitalized patients, there's not any benefit for hydroxychloroquine. Sure, that's a treatment study. You know, it's interesting to think about taking anti-malarials as pre-exposure prophylaxis. Of course, that's something that people do all the time when they travel to malaria endemic countries. Correct. There's a massive safety track record with that. So it's not really a safety concern, but does it work? What criticisms have you heard from people, both within and outside of the scientific community? of the criticisms within the scientific community have not been dramatic. The biggest criticism and limitation of our paper, which we acknowledge, was the lack of PCR testing. And for those who were practicing medicine in March and in April, you realize that PCR testing, especially among outpatients, was a major problem. And, you know, there wasn't much we could do about that. And so uh, based on how we ran our trial, you know, that was sort of a limitation. But if you're exposed to a PCR positive person, and then you develop fever, cough, shortness of breath within a week or two, is that COVID? It's a probable diagnosis, but certainly from a syndromic, does it decrease symptomatic disease? It did not. And so you could say, oh, people could have influenza. Well, that's that's <laughs> true. But in a randomized trial, people with flu would be equally randomized between the two arms. April is sort of the end of flu season. You have a bunch of healthcare workers who are typically required to be vaccinated by their employer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's possible, but you know, it would be pretty unlikely. So I think that's the big negative side from the scientific community, which I think is a very valid criticism. There's certainly people that get very excited about subgroup analyses, as most clinicians and clinical trialists know that that it's easy to overinterpret subgroup analyses. Mm-hmm. We'll eventually release our data set this month, and people will be able to data mine and get some p-value if you adjust for this. And people with purple hair that were enrolled on a Tuesday. <laughs> but when you look in the, the overall trial, there was not overt benefit. Did you get any uh, social media attacks or any other hate mail. There's lots of social media stuff. And I, th- I found that if I just don't log on, then it's actually much better. So there's vast conspiracy theories um, circulating that, you know, I got a sandwich from Gilead in 2018 worth $17. So therefore, I'm in the pocket of big pharma. There's other just random conspiracy theories that as a double blind randomized placebo controlled trial, I designed it to fail. So it's interesting because as a double blind study, I had no no control over it, of course. especially as it's mostly self-reported. I think it's kind of interesting that I didn't expect Russian trolls and sort of other operatives to go after me personally, but I'll survive. Okay. So what other work is your group doing? Uh- yeah. So we've got two more COVID trials. Uh, one is an early treatment trial. It's a companion trial to this of people who had symptoms within four days. Uh, and so that trial has been completed. It's been analyzed. 
it's not a perfect trial. And so if people didn't like the fact that people didn't get PCR testing in the first trial, they may, they may not like this one either. But I think it's informative. And then the third trial is the PrEP study. And so we've got 1,500 healthcare workers around the U.S. and they're high-risk healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. So they're not just people sitting in offices or labs, but you know, frontline healthcare workers working in ICUs mm-hmm. or emergency departments or anesthesia or respiratory therapists or first responders. And so fairly high risk of COVID. Mm, excellent. Um, so that's led by one of my colleagues, Radha Rajasingham. And we're hopeful to get some data maybe by early July. Mm-hmm. That One major challenge in these studies is the dramatic upswings and downswings in cases. And I'm just speaking from our experience in Boston. We had several weeks where we had so many cases, it was almost impossible to enroll them all into clinical trials. We're just The volume was overwhelming, and now it's just the opposite. The case numbers have dropped so dramatically here. I don't know how you're adjusting for that, or just the fact that you're being doing it all around the country means it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think it's all around the country. Yeah. But yeah, I think you know the places that were hot spots six weeks ago are no longer hot spots. And so I think by going around the country, hopefully some of that is has balanced out. The PCR testing has improved markedly in that trial, which is great. Mm-hmm. We're working on a DSMB report and looked at like, oh, people actually are getting PCR testing now, which is great. So we're hopeful to wrap that up. And then I'm hopeful to get back to my crypto world, cryptococcal disease. We've got a couple of fun clinical trials that are in the pipeline. We're working on a, the AMBITION trial, which is single-dose liposomal AMFO trial. We've got an oral amphotericin product that we're going into a phase two trial that in theory, if it works, will be great. It may not work. And so we will find out shortly if that's a game changer or not. Once Uganda opens up in a couple of weeks, we're going to restart the oral AMFO trial, which we're excited about. Well, congratulations again, David, on carrying off a really impressive study, and I was thrilled to see it published. So joining me today was Dr. David Bolwar. He is a professor of medicine at University of Minnesota, and he has recently completed a fascinating study on post-exposure prophylaxis for COVID-19 just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Thanks, David. Thank you very much.